0: I think it's Nelson Mandela who said education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. And language education itself seems to me to be even the most powerful of the powerful weapons within education.
1: One of the things coming out of the teacher community is we want to do this, we're, we're, we're keen to do it, but we don't really know how to.
2: No, they haven't told me about the climate change. Yes, I would like to learn about this topic. I would like to know how I can help. Young people are mostly getting information about climate change outside of school. For the organisations, now's the time to get real.
3: The British Council presents the climate connection.
2: La connection climatique. Klima- the climate connection.
0: La connection climatica.
3: Climate action in language education. This is episode one. Taking the temperature. Hello and welcome to the climate connection a British Council podcast focusing on climate action in language education. I'm your host, Chris Souton. This is episode one, Taking the Temperature, what the English language teaching community is and should be doing about the climate crisis. Across this 10-part series, I'll be talking to a wide range of people and organisations at the very cutting edge of language education and the climate crisis. Alongside these interviews, we'll be hearing directly from practitioners in the field, telling their own stories in a section called From the Field. Each episode will also contain shorter, more condensed vox pops from teachers and students as far afield as Cairo and Croatia, Delhi and Dubai, Porto and Palestine. We'll also be looking into climate-related language in our Green Glossary section, but more of that later.
4: La Connexion
3: In our first interview this week, we speak to Harry Kucha Kucha. Harry is a lecturer in language education at the University of Leeds in the UK, having previously worked as an English language teacher, teacher trainer, and policy maker in his home country of Cameroon. He is also the current president of IATEFL, the International Association of Teachers of English as a Foreign Language and a member of the British Council's English Language Advisory Group. De Klima Connectivität So, to begin with, Harry, perhaps I could ask a very general question. What responsibility do you think the ELT sector as a whole has towards the climate crisis?
0: I think we have a very huge responsibility because English language education is kind of the melting pot for what every other subject area does. English language and language Overall, is that tool that we use to communicate all these values that are dear to human beings and that are fundamental to our survival on the planet? The way we communicate. The way we engage with people can make Omar the planet because they can shape people's attitudes and beliefs and actions consequently. So for me, ELT has got a really fundamental role, partnering with science to support initiatives that help us sustain our environment.
3: And do you think the language classroom in particular is a special place where that kind of thing can happen?
0: I agree. It is in many ways. I think it's Nelson Mandela who said education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. And language education itself seems to me to be even the most powerful of the powerful weapons within education. As we know, language is is a symbolic tool and the way we use it shapes the way we behave, the way we respond. And the English language class seems to me an ideal place for bringing all these ideas together so that students are not just languaging, but they're using language to talk about things that are really dear to them and that are dear to their environment. So for me, yes. And there are lots of examples of work that language teachers are doing around the world, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, to bring that into the classroom.
3: So what kind of ways uh, are IETEPL looking to do that and bring those ideas together? Uh, And what do you think teachers can learn from each other about linking language learning to the climate crisis?
0: Well, from ITEPL's perspective, since 2019, we made sustainability one of the four strands of our development strategy now sustainability became an important part and you know there would be no point in having a sustainability strategy if we do not actively do things to make a difference And I think ITFL has done a lot of things over the last couple of years, like actually reducing the amount of paperwork and forms and letters that we print and post to members. You probably know that for a while now, for some years now, we've encouraged our members to opt for digital publications, digital versions of our publications. And we're currently thinking about making voices fully digital as well. We have been since. 2020, we've been using fully biodegradable polybags for our postage to members, for those members who still need uh, publications posted. I would like to encourage anyone listening to us to look at ITFO's webpage because we have a list of things we have put in place going forward to try and reduce our carbon footprint.
3: One of your personal areas of expertise is young learners. I wonder if you could share any ideas and tips for language teachers who are working with young learners, how they can help link the environment to language learning.
0: I think a starting point is to see language teaching as a political agenda itself. Political in, in the sense that language teaching is value-led. We teach values, we teach human values. And we might decide to thwart the values if we don't want to do the right thing or project those values that are important. So I think for children, we need to start by thinking about what values we want to teach them, because for children, it's not just about using the language, it's also why are we using the language we're using the language to connect to socialize to to create harmonious relationships with the people around us and i think that's a good starting point the other one is also and that for sustainability um would be learning to learn helping children not just teaching them but teaching them how to learn so that they can become critical listeners interact with people, listen and learn new ideas and use them in creative ways. Those two are fundamental to me. So teaching the environment begins by building those values, identifying the values, training our learners to be able to listen to those values and take action. And very little things like their health, their body and how their body interacts with the rest of the world would be or or their environment would be good starting points for developing content. That is engaging for children. That appeals to their senses and their curiosities and their their authentic reality. So, pointing out things about them with children, you know that children would tell you, "Oh, that's not good. That's not fair. You didn't say hello. That's not good. You have got to." So, those little values that we bring to the classroom for children are quite important. And saving our climate and our environment depends on how best we bring these realities into the classroom, supporting children to be able to identify them, to be able to listen to stories or whatever that reflect the environment and make sense of those in a way that is authentic to their reality and taking their own action. I think most of the problems we have now is because there there are certain values that we learn at a very late stage in life when we have already accumulated habits that are counterproductive to those values and developing those habits from childhood in a sense for me helps in this long-term sustainable way of sustaining our environment if I might say.
3: I guess one of the challenges of that is that there's still very strong perceptions in many parts of the world by education ministries, by school principals, by teachers, by parents, that that that's not the function of language teaching. Learning language means understanding the past simple, the second conditional, the lexical set of transport, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and being then tested on those discrete pieces of knowledge. How do we as a community, as an ELT community, shift that paradigm? How do we change... The perception of of what language education should be?
0: I think we we have a, a big responsibility to do that. And that starts with having the right people doing the right thing. I know that language policies are often political policies. They're not always informed by linguists, they're often informed by political situations that we might not know. But at the end of the day, the people who are called upon to implement those policies are often people connected with language. And we have an, a unique chance to embed all those linguistic, discrete linguistic items into content that is relevant. The trouble is if we, on, uh, on our part, go ahead to just deal with uh, uh, discrete language content, then we are giving, selling our bet rights to the wrong people. I think there, there should be some form of militancy in the way we language professionals work. Militancy in the sense that we are using our understanding of language and how language actually works in society to develop students' learning, bringing those discrete language items that are often measured into the language classroom. So I think we need to look at that in terms of the curriculum, but also in terms of the materials that we design for our students, the textbooks and other resources that we use. How are they related to the student's authenticity? I think there is a bond between every teacher And their students, that is stronger than every other born outside the classroom. And that partnership that we develop with our students is saving. In my own experience, I've actually had to go against, slightly against school protocols uh, and to develop evidence from working with my students that something else really works. And it is that evidence that made school authorities understand that there are alternative ways of doing it. After all, the evidence was in the results and in my students' confidence to express themselves in the language, in a context where students were struggling with English as a very a foreign language that's in the French medium part of the country. So we need so you, to. Be so,
3: so I was going to say that, Harry, so you can almost say that you can see the, the language learning classroom as a safe space where those sorts of ideas can be explored and discussed.
0: Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I think the language classroom is that safe space outside the politics of policy where teachers and students can actually engage in a meaningful way so that students are learning discrete language items, but at the same time, actually learning about the world in which they live.
3: And I think for some teachers working in those sorts of challenging circumstances, they can feel... I can't do anything because the government says this, the textbook says this, my school principal says this and so on and so on. But even then, in their own classroom, there's still so much an individual teacher can can do with their students.
0: Yes, there is. And uh, uh, there is a lot that individual teachers in in challenging uh, uh, circumstances can do. And Michael West himself said that in the 60s, that the more challenges teachers have, the more the opportunities for them to be creative.
3: Have you got any specific examples that you know of, uh, Harry, either from your own experience or sort of other iatefl members and what, and what they're doing in, for example, sub-Saharan Africa?
0: I know I've had a presentation which is online on pedagogies of partnership. It's something that I've been talking about a lot. And I show examples of work that my colleagues in Cameroon are doing with their students, engaging with students to identify themes and topics that the students would be interested in because the idea of authenticity has often been built around materials but it's not often situated in the person so a text is authentic because it's written without explicit, it's written not to teach English, it's written, say, a newspaper article or a novel. Those are authentic materials, but authentic to whose reality? So the work I've been doing with the Camerota Research Group and my colleagues in Cameroon has been to try and push the idea of authenticity beyond just the material, but to the participants, the students, what is authentic to the students, what are their authentic realities, and how would they want those to be brought into the classroom? Classroom. And experiences from colleagues have shown that students want to talk about the environment, about garbage disposal in their environment, about cultural beliefs of bushfires and things like that, that impact on the environment. And when teachers bring this into the classroom, students are engaged they are motivated their sense of agency is developed and they make themselves partners in the process not just around bringing the materials but also engaging in the practices the pedagogic practices that the teacher might want to to adapt in the classroom
3: on that point about learner autonomy as well it seems so important that teachers play a role in developing the agency of their students because in many ways these young people at school now are going to be the ones who have to clear up the mess that previous generations of yeah. adults have created for them in terms of the environment. So Absolutely. in that way, we need to shift that pedagogy as well to develop those skills and aptitudes.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I'm really glad that teachers in, in Africa are doing that. Uh, my colleagues in the Cameroon English Language Teachers Association, are uh, more and more, they're engaging with students, bringing students' agency to the fore, making students part of The content development, but also the pedagogy that they use in the classroom. And that's something that's beginning to happen, especially in challenging contexts. And that's something we need to be promoting and developing and and sharing.
3: Harry, thank you so much for your time today.
0: Thank you very much.
3: Thanks to Harry for his time. You can find out more about IATEFL at www.iatefl.org. And we'll be speaking to the coordinator of IATEPL's Global Issues Special Interest Group in a future episode.
4: My name is Ushamat Aremu. I am a student in Kandi in Benin. There is climate change everywhere, in my village, in big cities and big countries everyone is suffering from consequences of climate change. My name is Reyanat Monzorogi. I'm a student in Shoei De in Benin. I think that people from big cities are to be blamed for climate change because they pollute a lot. My
0: name is Zachary Saleh Ufaizou, I am a student in sege de Kandi in Benin. There are many causes of climate change, first of all there is deforestation, secondly there is pollution. To reduce climate change, we should stop destroying forests. La
2: connexion climatique
3: Tunisia is a small and beautiful country situated in North Africa between its two enormous neighbours Algeria and Libya. It has beaches, forests, deserts and mountains, but it too faces many environmental challenges, in particular coastal erosion and desertification. In this episode's From the Field, we visit a school in Gabes on Tunisia's eastern coast to discover what they are doing to address the climate crisis in their local area.
2: Hi everyone, I am Nour Talmoudi. I am a student from Tunisia. Today I am with my friends and Mrs. Faten Abdelmalek. We are recycling more than two thousands of plastic bottle caps. We have many uh, ideas to share. Hi, my name my name is Maram Zetoun. Recycle it all, no matter how small. Hi, my name is Wasim, Collect, reuse, save our planet. Hi, I am Sarah Bobidi. I I love
4: recycling. As if we turn rubbish into magic.
2: Hello, my name is Mrs. Fenton Abdul Malik. I am an ESL teacher from Tunisia. I am teaching young learners in uh, the primary school of Abdelmajid majid in Gebes, uh, south of Tunisia. As a teacher, I believe that we are dream makers and we have the power to uh, change many things. The teacher uh, must pave the way uh, for the learners of the 21st century because uh, they will face uh, the challenges of tomorrow. There will be men and women uh, the future, there will be our hope to save the earth. Taking in consideration that only 11% of plastics in the world are recycled, I raise the challenge to reuse plastics in our classroom by uh, making uh, teaching aids, big flags, toys and even bird's nests in
4: the playground of the school.
0: I'm Nathan Shreve, I'm an English teacher. As a teacher, I'm aware of the climate change and the necessity to embed this topic in our lesson plans and in our project works with learners. So it's our responsibility to raise their awareness by the environmental issues. That's why from the beginning we teach them how to solve big problems with mere habits and
4: to uh, encourage their parents to be engaged uh, through using eco-friendly substitutes such as paper and cloth bags
0: instead of plastics. Uh, they have to be aware and uh, that's our duty to save nature and to stop abusing Earth.
3: Collect, reuse!
2: Save our planet! The Climate Connection
3: In our second interview this week we turn to a new report commissioned by the British Council looking at how the ELT community as a whole is responding to the climate crisis. Deeper Merchandani is the founder and CEO of Deeper Meaningful Consulting, an organization focused on creating systemic and regenerative environmental, social and economic change. Chris Graham is a freelance ELT consultant, trainer, writer and speaker. Over the past four decades, he has worked with education ministries, publishers, institutions and language schools on projects in over 30 countries. Together, they are the co-authors of the Climate Action in Language Education Report, a new British Council publication which highlights global efforts to make the ELT sector greener, promote and facilitate environmental responsibility and incentivize sustainability. They are here today to give us an early look into the main findings. Welcome Deepa and Chris.
1: Thank you very much, Chris. Hello.
3: So, to start with, can you give us some background as to how the report came about and how many people you've interviewed in your research?
1: Well, I suppose my my kind of personal journey into this was I was one of the people who founded ELT Footprints, which is a grouping that exists online, basically, to help people in the ELT community share good practice around integrating climate topic into their classes and supporting teachers trying to do that. And so it's been a very interesting project. And to answer your question, I think it's around about 30 people have been interviewed, some of them formally. And other people have been less formal conversations, a little bit of background to certain organisations. And that's also been very interesting, as well as some more structured interviews.
2: And I think part of that is, this is one component of the British Council's work on climate change and in the run-up to COP26. The onus being on wanting to inspire action through showcasing great practices. And so that being... In the format of the report is one of many different activities that the council has got underway and I think to be really able to demonstrate activity that's going on around the world and so that's been very much part of the research that we've done and the people that we've interviewed and also the reach of the surveys that we conducted was really to be able to demonstrate that breadth of activity that's happening across the world.
3: And what are some of these great practices that you've come across deeper? Could you share one or two with us?
2: Actually, a lot of it's about individual action. It's about teachers being inspired and inspiring in the way that they are constructing their classes, in the way that they're engaging young people, in really getting to grips with what this means for them in their local communities. From the use of music and song and documentaries and sort of mixed media, And using that as a means of engaging conversations and inspiring curiosity to let's get our hands dirty and put our hands in the soil to build connection by connecting young people to each other to be able to have these conversations and recognizing the power of language to be able to do that.
1: Backing up what Deeper says, a lot of it is, maybe grassroots is the wrong term, but projects at classroom level or group of teachers level or just one individual who feels inspired to do something, That that's very much the theme. And I think as a result of that, it is, I suppose, by definition, quite fragmented. You've got something going on in Togo and you've got something else going on in Brazil. And of course, they don't communicate with each other. Why would they? There hasn't really been a natural forum. And uh, th- that, again, is one of the drivers of this report. It's a way where we can say, look, look what these guys in Togo. Good. Look at this project in Brazil, but there are also some more complex institutionally led projects going on as well, which I suppose in a sense I don't like the word top down, but effectively they are because they're driven partly because they have required a certain amount of budget to do it. The stuff going on, on on the institutional scale as well, therefore internationally. So, so that's been quite exciting. But um, I had a conversation with a woman called Diana Torosyan in the, at the American University of Armenia during her studies at university she spent some time at the, they have a center for environmental studies within the university she went on a, a voluntary course there found out a lot and got very concerned so she has written a course book which is her dissertation basically for 10 to 14 year old primary middle school children and She's done it at the university, published it, and it's now hopefully going to ministry approval. So it will actually be approved as a supplementary course. And she wrote it, got it published. She piloted it with about 50 students. And hopefully they're beginning to roll it out. Absolutely driven by her with the support of her supervisor. And that is, that's lovely, that kind of stuff.
2: We also um, interviewed those organisations working directly with young people on engaging young people on climate change. Also on the themes of things like eco-anxiety, specifically tailored for young people, On not just the science or the thematic areas, it's dealing with the emotional pressure of actually what it means to be part of a climate crisis and how that burden, the weight of it, and how young people being able to acknowledge it, cope with it, and then that leading to action. And that's also represented in the surveys that we carried out because we did it mining the opinions of young people not just in terms of what they know but also the areas that they're interested in and where they're accessing information.
3: Did you find a similarity or differences in terms of what young people were saying and what teachers, head teachers, institutions etc were saying?
2: Young people are mostly getting information about climate change outside of school and there's a lot of social media access which means that they understand the nuance and the connectivity of climate change and racial justice they're joining those dots because those are the nuanced conversations that are happening whereas it feels like conversations within the classroom there is this tendency to um
1: i think one of the problems with so many elt course books is that they have one unit unit seven called the environment or our green planet or something like that you do that unit tick the box we've done that and then forget about green issues for a year and i think that's a, a rather disconnected way of approaching things
2: yeah so we need to move away from that approach and recognising that climate change is integrated and nuanced across all the subjects it's not a science topic it's not a it's not just a geography topic it it feels that young people are more equipped to recognise that and understand it whereas for best will in the world, teachers want to be teaching that, but aren't necessarily have got the resource or the support in order to, to do that.
1: I think one of the things coming out of the teacher survey and also interviews around the teacher community is, we want to do this, but we don't really know how to. How do we integrate it? We can't do it. And we probably don't have time to do it anyway. But there is a mismatch, as far as I can see, between what is available material-wise and what the youth voice is driving, what they want.
3: And so do you think that a more integrated approach is needed, not only across the curriculum, but in terms of what language schools are doing or what institutions are doing? And that has to be reflected in their practices as well as their curriculum.
2: From an outsider perspective, what's really interesting to me is there's a bit of that kind of mindset shift in how you don't need to be an expert. Actually, it's you're responsible for inspiring curiosity and research skills and providing young people with the vocabulary to be able to demonstrate that curiosity, you don't need to be a subject matter specialist.
3: Do you think that young people are increasingly linking climate justice to social justice to racial justice and so on? Do you think that potentially some institutions are scared of letting that genie out of the box in that way? I don't know whether
1: institutions are, I think probably publishers might be. I think institutions is going to vary according to political, cultural circumstances where we are in the world. There is a caution. I sense publishers are not not engaging. It may be because they feel there is a genie that needs to be kept in the box. In certain markets, they might struggle to sell their books crudely. There is certainly a mismatch between Youth Voice and what schools have either in their curriculum or in the course books they use.
3: Now, obviously, your report is one way of highlighting some of these good practices from all around the world, from Togo and Brazil and all these places that you've been talking to people. What other networks or what other mechanisms do you think could be put in place or could evolve in order to highlight some of these issues and to make those sort of step changes that are necessary in the future?
1: I think the networks are probably already there. I think the teachers associations have a great role to play. And indeed they are. I mean, a couple of the case studies will be around teacher associations, one in Moldova and the one in Togo. They are beginning to engage. I think teacher associations, language schools associations around the world. I think the networks are already there. It's just engaging those networks.
3: Could you just say a little, uh, Chris, just about the the Togolese Teachers Association and what particularly they're doing uh, that you found so impressive?
1: I had a, a long chat with the guy who runs the association there at Dalok. Plastic bags. Oh, he, I know a huge challenge in much of Africa, but, but it's a real challenge in West Africa, not only to the extent of them being, being thrown in the streets and discarded, but also people sadly burn them to keep warm with all the horrible consequences of that. So basically, the project was around educating primary students to go home to, i use the word, educate educate mum and dad about plastic bag use. And they've actually seen an impact. Apparently now taxis in Lome have a container because traditionally people would go shopping, sort their shopping out in the taxi and throw the plastic bag out the window. Now there's a container in the taxi where the bags can be put rather than being thrown out the window. So he's actually seeing direct behaviour change as a result of of English language education. And the other thing I like, he's brought people in from rural areas and the regions, trained them supported them and they're cascading it through the schools. So it's not just because very often these projects are just often capital city he's mm. actually got out to rural areas to isolated areas and it's led to some degree of behavior change and that's what it's about i suppose isn't it really
3: and placing young people at the center of the process yeah. and i guess as well developing those links between the local community and the schools which mm. are not always there mm. and perhaps i could just uh close by asking you both Having done this research and written this report, do you feel more optimistic or pessimistic about the ELT sector and its efforts to become greener?
1: I actually feel slightly more optimistic. I mean, reflecting what Deepa says, I mean, there is a lot of activity, individual-led, community-led activity out there, but there are still gaps in in the chain around materials, around resource, around training. But I'm optimistic that those gaps will start to close.
3: So from what you say just there, Chris, you feel we're almost at a tipping point, do you think, where we we tip over into more integrated, meaningful sort of emphasis on the climate crisis within the ELT classroom?
1: I think the green shoots are there, yes. But it does require some of the, the big stakeholders, significant stakeholders to say, right, we're going to do this. The teen voice, the youth voice out there is saying, we want this very clearly, loud and clear, we want this. And hopefully also pressure from teachers or increasingly also pressure from parents as well. I, people around the world are engaging more and more. We, we, we want our kids to, to get their brains around this. So, so I think it will get better. I mean, I'm not saying they are green shoots, but I think the circle will be completed.
3: And for you, DP, do you share Chris's emerging optimism?
2: I think that for the organizations that make up this ecosystem, I think it's now's the time to get real because I don't think it has been great. I don't think the lack of environmental policies the or tangible action, the, oh, you know, we're going to look at this area because it's tied to our, our carbon footprint, but we're not going to actually join the dots and think about content. I think now's the time, I think the tipping point is organizations realizing that you either have to get on board with this or you're going to lose your market differentiator. And I think the bigger picture about the pressure on organisations, institutions to not just have awareness of climate change and its impacts, but to have demonstrable impact in it and recognise their roles and responsibilities within it is going to be a major differentiator. And I think the quicker organisations are savvy to recognise that the quicker they'll be able to pivot and adapt and respond to very discerning and very vocal young people who are gonna call you out. And those that don't respond will be seen as, as laggards and people will go will just go elsewhere. And I think that's exciting because it means action will have to happen.
3: Chris Deeper, thank you very much for your time today.
1: Thank
2: you, Chris.
3: Thank you very much. Thanks to Chris and Deeper. And don't forget, Chris and Deeper's Climate Action in Language Education report will be published in early June. Oxford University Press is the world's leading dictionary publisher. In addition to its dictionaries for children and language learners, it also produces dictionaries of current English through the Oxford Languages Department, who are responsible not only for the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, but dictionaries in many other languages including Arabic, Portuguese and Russian. The British Council is delighted that editors from the OED and Oxford Languages will be sharing with us their words of wisdom about climate-related vocabulary in every episode of the Green Glossary. I'm sure that while many of you listening will have a print copy of the OED in your staff room, office or home or alternatively a digital version on your laptop, phone or tablet you may not know much about its origins. The first part of the OED, or fascicle as they were known, was published in 1884. It was slow going at first, taking five years to get from A to Ant. Subsequent fascicles were published over the next 44 years with the first edition finally being completed in 1928. Now nearly a hundred years later the OED's third edition is online only updated with new and revised words on a quarterly basis. While many climate related words are already included in the OED its editors are actively monitoring many new terms in this field and you're likely to see many more climate words on their update pages in the years to come. The OED is not just a very large dictionary, it is also a historical dictionary. It traces a word from its beginnings, which may potentially be more than a thousand years ago, through to the present. It shows the varied ways it has been used, using real example quotations from sources ranging from newspapers, journals and encyclopedias to cookbooks, political leaflets and social media. In short, anywhere that the English language is used. The OED is thus a record of how language is now and has historically been used. It does not try to influence how words should be used. Furthermore, unlike in dictionaries of current English, where words are removed when they are no longer in common use, once a word enters the OED it is never removed. We hope you enjoy the Green Glossary and as well as discovering more about words connected to the climate crisis, You'll also discover more about important aspects of the English language, such as synonyms, collocations, loan words, affixes, and, in this episode, neologisms. The Green Glossary.
2: The Green Glossary.
3: Brought to you by Oxford University Press.
4: Hello, I'm Kate Wiles and I'm an editor at the Oxford English Dictionary. I'm going to start with talking about climate emergency, which at Oxford Languages we chose as our word of the year in 2019. When we were looking at the linguistic trends of 2019, it became clear that there had been a significant increase in usage of climate related words. Other words in our shortlist for word of the year were eco anxiety, ecocide, flight shame, and climate denial. And we'll be talking about some of those words in future podcasts. But climate emergency was a term that really stood out. When we're picking a word of the year, one of our resources is our Monitor Corpus of English, a multi-billion word collection of web-based news material, which is updated every month. And the corpus data showed that the term climate emergency was more than a hundred times more frequent in 2019 than it had been the previous year. And it overtook health emergency as the most common compound of emergency. Now, climate emergency is not a new term, The words we choose as words of the year are not necessarily completely new words or new to our dictionaries. In fact, the earliest evidence we've seen so far for a climate emergency is from 1975 in an article from an American newspaper in which the reporter writes about how bulldozing trees might lead to a climate emergency. But before 2019, it was not especially frequent. Then in 2019, it became a very high profile term as various countries declared a state of climate emergency. And The Guardian and some other news outlets made the decision to prefer the term climate emergency over climate change. We'll be discussing the differences between those two terms in another podcast. Last year, our word of the year selection was slightly different. We felt we couldn't pick a single word to encapsulate the concerns of 2020. So we instead published a report on overall linguistic trends of the year. And because COVID-19 and other issues were so dominant, words relating to climate change were, on the whole, not as prominent in general discourse as they had been the previous year. There were some climate-related words that we did highlight, though. For example, the word anthropos was coined in June 2020. The first part of this word is anthropo, meaning relating to humans, the same element that's in anthropogenic and anthropocene. And the second part is pause. The Anthropause refers to the global pause in or slowdown of travel and other human activity during the pandemic and the welcome consequences of this slowdown for the planet. We haven't added Anthropause to the OED or any of our other dictionaries yet. We'd want to see whether it really takes hold and becomes widely used. This is how we approach adding any new word to our dictionaries. We gather information about new words from lots of different sources, language corpora, books and periodicals, websites and social media. We also get suggestions sent in by users as well. And each time we update our dictionaries, we look at the new words candidates and decide which ones are most significant. We don't include every new word in the OED or in any of our dictionaries, as this would be impossible without unlimited time and resources. And we tend to monitor words for a while before adding them to see if they stay around. Many words come in and out of use all the time and have very short lifespans. To give an example, one of the words that came to our attention a few years ago was CLEXIT, formed by analogy with Brexit and referring to potential withdrawal from international climate agreements. CLEXIT saw a flurry of usage in 2016, but it didn't take hold as a generic term and it's become less frequent. So that's one that we haven't added. Whereas we can compare that with some environment related words that we have added to the OED, like rewilding, greenwashing, carbon footprint and food mile. These are all widely used with many thousands of examples in corpora and databases in lots of different contexts, and they're clearly established terms. They all date back to the 1990s or earlier. There are various other climate-related words on our watch list at the moment. One that I find particularly interesting is solastalgia. This word was coined by the Australian environmental philosopher Glenn Albrecht in 2003. It blends the sol in both solace and desolation with algae meaning pain as in nostalgia and it refers to the sense of distress caused by environmental change and degradation so it's semantically similar to eco-anxiety it's taken some time for the word solastalgia to spread most of the early evidence we've seen is either by or referring to albrecht or referring to the word as a coinage in uses like i came across this new word solastalgia And we would want to see more natural use of a word in context before adding it to our dictionaries. But we're starting to see more of that sort of contextual evidence. For example, one recent newspaper article described the wave of solastalgia that washes over us when we hear about particular climate events. The spread of the word might also have been helped along by its use as the name of an album by the Australian singer, Missy Higgins in 2018. It's fascinating to watch words as they take root and solastalgia is certainly one that we're monitoring. When we talk about new words or neologisms, we're often referring to completely new formations like solastalgia and anthropos. But many linguistic innovations are new senses of existing words, phrases or collocations. That's the case with the term dirty weather. People have talked about dirty weather for hundreds of years, meaning bad weather. For example, we have a quotation in the OED from 1660 that reads, when the snow is dissolved, a great deal of dirty weather will follow. However, in 2012, Al Gore used the term dirty weather in a different sense. In his Dirty Weather Report, part of the Climate Reality Project, Gore said that dirty energy is changing our climate and causing dirty weather, referring to weather events like extreme storms, floods, and heat waves being caused by fossil fuel emissions. It's been widely observed that the terms climate change and global warming aren't sufficiently negative or urgent sounding, and dirty weather is one of numerous alternative terms that are becoming available to better describe the situation, along with global heating, climate chaos, and indeed climate emergency. The climate connection.
0: My name is Patrice Kane from Mali, a West African country in the EcoWax area. I teach environmental contact in my lessons through pictures, living the context, storytelling and discretion to propose solutions to the local environmental issues.
4: The Climate Connection
3: That's all from The Climate Connection this week. Let us know what you thought on social media using the hashtag The Climate Connection. And if you enjoyed what you heard, Don't forget to like and subscribe. Join us again in two weeks for episode two, Speaking Youth to Power, How Young People Are Fighting the Climate Crisis. You can also visit the podcast website at www.britishcouncil.org climate hyphen connection. Until next time. The climate connection.
2: La connection climatica. The
3: climate connectivity.
2: The climate
0: connection. La connection
2: climatica. It's actually, Chris, you're coming out really loud. You've got a mic love, it's fine. Yeah, <laughs> Exactly. No. You take care then, I'll go grab a B and out. Sorry, we overran there. It was
0: so in that, That's <laughs> fine. You, you, well, I feel sorry for you because you've got a lot of work oh, now. Oh yeah, it's you got
3: to go through that up. now. <laughs> yeah.
0: The climate connection.